morning, guys. I'll go ahead and take your Bibles as you're uh, pulling them out, open them to 1 Corinthians 3. That's where we're going to be here shortly. Um, I can't help but add a word of appreciation to the oars and their uh, ministry with FCA Baseball. Uh, They were sitting over here in the first service. Um, But their ministry has meant so much to our family, so just a little uh, uh, plug and appreciation. Um, my, both of my sons uh, grow up participating in that ministry and heard the gospel there, among many other places. One of my sons traces his conversion back to Decision Day at baseball camp a handful of years ago. That, that's when he actually trusted the Lord for the first time. All of my kids have had an opportunity to work uh, with Ben in his baseball camp. My boys as, as junior counselors, my girls have made snow cones for them and all kinds of stuff. And then this past summer, <clears throat> my youngest son, who was able to participate as a junior counselor for the very first time, had an opportunity. So this is the one that trusted Christ savingly at FCA baseball camp this past summer. Uh, he had the opportunity with the, with the younger kids to share the gospel on decision day. And old dad was able to uh, sneak around over there and get some video footage, and he did a pretty good job. Um, and in many ways, I think, I think one of the reasons he did a decent job is because of discipleship he's received at Grace and in the children's Sunday school uh, classes, but, but, but even from, from Ben Orr and having him be an influence and a coach to him uh, over the years. And the really neat thing about it was when he was done, and he, you know, he talked for a minute and a half, two minutes, Ben was right there waiting in the wings, not only to encourage him, but also in the mind of these young campers, kind of just step in and help tie off any loose ends or any gaps that there were in the presentation. It was a really neat partnership uh, in ministry together. So, so thankful um, for their ministry. Can't help but uh, give, give uh, props to them and the way that they've influenced not only hundreds of kids that I don't know over the years, but my kids uh, specifically. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, today, picking up where we left off last time. A few years ago, uh, this guy named Simon Sinek, he's a leadership guru. If you read uh, leadership materials, he wrote a book. Uh, he's written several. His, probably the one he's most well known for is called Start With Why. Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action. He did a TED Talk uh, based on the theme of the book. Apparently, it's like the third most viewed TED Talk of all time. The premise of his book is basically whoever you're trying to inspire, whether it's consumers, individuals, voters, you know, whatever, if you're trying to inspire them to to act uh, in some fashion, he argues that they're not primarily motivated or inspired on the basis of what we do or what we provide. He says inspiration instead comes from the why behind what it is that we do. In other words, he's saying that what's really compelling to people is clarity of purpose, clarity of, of mission. And I think that's actually a pretty solid premise, probably in, in leadership circles. I definitely think it's solid theologically speaking. Over the years, uh, my wife and I have had the opportunity to have many conversation with our children trying to help them differentiate their what from their why. If you use that terminology, their what would be, uh, it, it's, it's really any task you might be working on. It could be a homework assignment, a music lesson, an art lesson, baseball practice, uh, frustration with a, with a sibling. It's, it's, it's the activity before you. 
The why, again, thinking in theological terms, and so stepping back from the way Sinek is using it, is not just why they're doing that activity, but why they do any activity, why they were made, what's their purpose, why are they here, to know and enjoy God. And then if you take that as the overlay on any activity that we do, it provides context, right, for whatever it is we might be doing. How would I know and enjoy uh, God to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength in this success or this failure at this task or that task? I think it's really uh, a helpful way of thinking and speaking. Uh, we could spend a little bit of time on that, but that's not this sermon precisely. I think if Paul were writing th- the message that we're gonna uh, examine together today and, and title it something like a leadership guru would title it, I think the title of his message would be Start With Who? Start With Who? Start With Who You Are in Christ. His argument, Paul's argument, is that identity in Christ precedes and fuels the right kind of activity, the right kind of ministry. And in particular, the Corinthians need to be reminded of who they are so that they will specifically be able to follow Paul's counsel about where to go for true wisdom in a way that's very countercultural uh, to, the, to the time and age in which uh, he was writing to them. Now, starting with who, that's, that's not just what our passage is about. I think it's what the gospel is about. I think the gospel reminds us that the prior action is God's action in saving sinners before calling them to a new way of living. He makes us a new who. You with me? Does that make sense? Before he tells us what to do. I mean, it's... It's all throughout the scriptures. It's as obvious as even in the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? Remember when, when, when Israel received the Ten Commandments? They weren't, they weren't giving to, given to them while in bondage in Egypt and told that if you, you know, manage with these sufficiently for a while, then redemption will come. Redemption comes first, right? Deliverance comes first, and then after they've been delivered from Egypt, the Ten Commandments are given as a response to their new who, how they are to respond to God. Well, the problem that Paul is addressing in our passage today is the same one we've been describing in every sermon we've had in our series in 1 Corinthians so far, meaning that if we're still talking about the same thing in chapter 3 and we'll continue talking about it next week in chapter 4, it must be a pretty big deal, right? If he's given it this much airtime, it must be of some consequence. Specifically, the problem that he's addressing is the fact that the Corinthians are dividing themselves around their preferred speakers, their favorite orators. And it seems that they're doing so because they have the sense that if I identify with this speaker or that speaker with with this gifting and that oratory, maybe that props up my own sense of being wise. They're desperate to appear wise. Now, Paul addresses this problem uh, in our passage basically in two steps that that kind of develop one expanding point revolving around the fact that these Corinthians, they're who, they're the who of God's building, right? That's that's the, the term he chooses to employ in our passage today. And it actually picks up right at the end of where Jason left off last week. So if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to pick this up reading in verse chapter 9, and you'll see the the, the very uh, quick change of metaphors here. So we'll pick it up in verse 9 and read down to the end of the chapter and then pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. 
Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, Paul says. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with good gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, <clears throat> for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So again, right at the end of verse 9, there's a switch of metaphors from your God's field now to your God's building, and he's reminding them that who they are as God's building should dictate the terms of how they ought to live, minister, and grow. This identity statement, we find it in the beginning, middle, and end of the passage, right? Right at the outset, God's building, down in verse 16, God's temple specifically, and down at the end of the passage in verses 21 through 23, you are Christ's, and in him, everything is yours. So right at the outset in verse 10, Paul now presents this image of the Corinthians as God's building, and he says, I laid a foundation, and now someone else is building upon it. Doesn't tell us who that someone else is, but he then gives the warning to whoever that may be, whoever these current builders are, let each one take care how he builds. There's been some uh, debate, uh, even disagreement on, on who the someone else might be, if, does Paul have uh, specifically Apollos in mind, for example? Some have wondered, he's talked about Apollos. I don't think that's who it is. In the previous, chap- uh, previous passage, he's referred to Apollos as a fellow laborer. Later on, he refers to him as a brother. Uh, Apollos probably isn't even in Corinth at this point in time. So when he uses the term uh, someone else in a way that has more of a warning than seems like what he said about his partnership Uh, with Apollos, it seems like he probably has those people in mind, and he's left it oblique enough to apply to many, uh, if they fit this bill, who've been promoting the worldly wisdom of sort of um, rhetorically-based favoritism that has been leading to the divisions amongst the people in Corinth. Now notice also in verse 10 how even though they and many in Corinth think of Paul as sort of an unimpressive speaker, Uh, He regards his ministry of laying this foundation as the ministry of a skilled master builder. So despite the fact that they think he's unimpressive, he's arguing that it is not the absence of wisdom, but the height of it to build upon the singular foundation of Jesus Christ. 
which leads into verse 11 and the acknowledgement that the need to take heed how they and we build is literally founded upon the fact that the foundation of this building is Jesus Christ himself. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the quality of the foundation demands the quality of the materials that are used to be built on top of it. The quality of materials to build on the foundation must correspond to the preciousness of the foundation. In other words, we don't take a foundation as as significant as Jesus and build a shack on top of it, right? We build a temple. Indeed, Paul says, the temple. So no other foundation can be laid and no impoverished materials should be used to build on that foundation. He goes on in verses 12 through 15 to elaborate on his warning by comparing the different types of materials, qualities of materials that might be used. Gold, silver, precious stones, right? In, in quality, they conform uh, to the to quality of the foundation, and then contrasting them with lesser materials like wood, hay, and straw. Been all kinds of ink spilt <clears throat> about what is good gold, silver, precious stones, like, what is that, that alluding to, and what about wood, hay, and straw, and more time, uh, not enough time to cover all those bases. Some people have argued that wood, hay, and straw may refer to some kind of inadequate teaching or doctrinal imprecision, and, and I certainly think that's possible. But in the context of chapters one through four, I think the direct application for wood, hay, and straw may, may simply be speaking to the worldly wisdom he's been addressing for three and a half chapters now. Uh, specifically, the kind of wisdom that fosters division in the community by ministers who basically effectively say, look at me in my oratory, right? They're, 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 they're making it about the, the glory of their own ministry. And Paul's point is that that kind of ministry does not correspond to the quality of its foundation. It's funny, um, I don't know if other preachers at Grace experience this. I do from time to time, and I did today. It's uh, ironic and humbling that having spent all the time praying and meditating and reading and preparing uh, for, for the message today, I think the best thing I'm going to say to you, I heard from Kenny 30 seconds before I got up to preach in the first service, so it's kind of a good point, right, that ministry is about the glory of Jesus and, and, and not the minister delivering the message. He, he used it in, in, uh, in the worship set just now as well, and, and he, he used the analogy of um, people who sort of try to live, or at least at times, in such a way that they've got one foot on the foundation, right? and one foot off, one foot on the foundation and one foot off, I think that may be a very helpful way of thinking about um, <clears throat> what Paul is, is talking about with these ministers in terms of the, uh, the wood, hay, and straw. So, for example, even if the substance of their content concerning Christ is accurate, that's one foot on, right? <clears throat> If the mindset of their delivery is, look at me, aren't I great? Give me some attaboys, some pats on the back. Then at best, at best, that mode of delivery is a distracting material that dishonors the foundation of the greatness of Christ. It distracts from the foundation of the greatness of Christ. 
it's, it's kind of as foolish as if the moon were to attempt to boast in the presence of the sun, right? <clears throat> I do, footnote, okay? I do want you to keep in mind something Moyer said in his message a couple of weeks ago. Paul is not criticizing ministers who work hard in preparing their messages and think carefully about leadership and try to use just the right terminology to magnify the glory of Christ. The, 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 the effort, the toil, the, uh, the sweat in the study, as it were, that's not the problem the motive is. It's not the hard labor, it's the motive if it terminates on look at me. <clears throat> I think if that's what Paul has in mind here with wood, hay, and straw, then these builders have gotten away from what ministers of the gospel are meant to be. Servants, instruments, and next week when Randy preaches, trustworthy stewards who are in the business not of self-magnification but Christ-magnification. And we all need to be wary of ministers who are not content to lead as servants of a much greater master. If you were here last Sunday, you heard uh, Jason Oakes tell a story on himself about a time when he had regrettably been that guy. I have a similar story. I did not try to bring down Campus Crusade. <laughs> However, <clears throat> and I've told this story before, so I won't go into detail right now, I cringe to admit that even though I didn't see it clearly then, I have a crystal clear image in my mind of a time when I preached in such a way that looking back, my goal was effectively that the people who heard me would think and say, what a great preacher, and not what a great savior. I think everything I said in the message was doctrinally orthodox, but I was orbiting the moon and not the sun. One of, my, uh, one, of the, one of the writers who helps me think carefully about the, the, the priorities of my, of my heart in, in ministry, he uses the term, he says there's a, there's a kind of, and this doesn't just apply to people in, in seminary and what have you, but he says there's a form of theological puberty, theological puberty that young ministers and young theologians go through when right, their academic learning is just swelling at, at, at super accelerated rates and it's very exciting. And it's like the, it's like the, the lanky adolescent whose limbs are gangly and, and, and they don't have a really great sense of balance because, as he says, their internal organs haven't caught up with their exterior reality. The heart, in some sense, has not yet kept pace with all the things that the mind is learning about and enjoying studying. Well, that was me. Friends, ministers who, while orthodox, nevertheless make ministry about their acclaim are not building in a way that honors the church's one foundation. John the Baptist, on the other hand, was exactly right when he said of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. Can I just say that makes me grateful for the leaders at Grace, right? The mode of ministry that takes place in here in Grace Group Sunday School classes, I, I, I don't catch that whiff of look at me, don't you think I'm great? Even I think the shared pulpit at Grace helps, and in some ways at least, to undermine that. Okay, in that light, Paul argues that on the day of judgment, what he calls the day in verse 13, everyone's work 
will be tested and disclosed by fire. He says work that is uh, found faithful will not only survive the fire, it'll also be rewarded. And then he contrasts that with defective labor that does not agree in quality with the foundation of Christ. And here he says that work will be burned up and loss will be suffered, but the worker will be saved only as through fire. What does that mean? Verse 15, saved as through fire. I think we could do a long uh, kind of sidebar on this too, and we're not going to. I think verse 15 is talking about the fact that even for genuine Christians in non-foundational matters, there are distorted forms of ministry and teaching that will be burned up. Kind of like my teaching example that I gave just a moment ago. I think on the, on the day it's gonna go Moon, not the sun, that's a problem. <clears throat> I think this, while directed to ministry leaders, I think it applies to all of us though, doesn't it? Because if you're a believer, you have a role of service and upbuilding in the body of Christ, and so it's a warning for all of us to pay attention to. But if we wanna put the warning positively rather than negatively, in other words, not, uh, instead of saying don't do this, trying to say do, do that, I think what Paul is saying here is minister and live right now in light of that day. Um, Think about it like this. If Paul were were saying, um, when that day comes, and in light of the clarity that that day will bring, what will be precious to you then? What will be precious to you on that day? And then whatever the answer is, I think he's saying invest in that now. Whatever, the answer, whatever will be precious to you when things are maximally clear, invest accordingly in your ministries, in your lives, and in your growth according to those patterns even right now. In verse 16, he goes back to who, right? He's done who, and then a warning, and then who again. And now in verse 16, he's talking about who they are, and it's not just a generic building of God but it's God's temple in particular. That's who they are, in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. And I don't want us just to read past that too quickly as though, hey, that's kind of a neat metaphor. We need to understand what a massive claim that is for the people of Corinth, both in terms of pagan Corinth and Old Testament theology. So on the one hand, the Corinthians are familiar with many temples and shrines to many false gods. As one commentator puts it, however, Paul is saying in verse 16, hey, since there's only one true God and he can only have one temple in Corinth, you need to understand that you are that temple, right? Amongst all the false temples to all the false gods, this is a different kind of God with a different kind of temple calling forth a different way of living. And then when we think about the... theology of the the temple in the Old Testament, we're reminded that the place that God's spirit cannot safely dwell is in direct contact with sinners. That's a scandalous claim to say collectively the spirit dwells within you. Remember the temple, the tabernacle in the Old Testament? On the one hand, it was a blessing, a way of saying God is with you. On the other hand, it's a protection because there's all these layers of barricade in which you can't get right up against Uh, the presence of God, the glory of God, because in your sinful state, that's deadly and toxic to a sinner. So the claim that they're the temple of God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit only works on the foundation of Jesus, who has fulfilled the ministry of the temple 
thereby granting us access to God on the basis of his perfect righteousness. It's a scandalous claim, but it's one that shows how rock solid the foundation of the good news is. So he's describing them as the temple of God. He then, in verse 17, turns to give his most stark warning about the manner of building on that foundation. And here, he's not addressing the people from previous. He's not addressing the one foot on, one foot off people, quit orbiting the moon, make sure you're orbiting the sun kind of thing. He's, he's addressing people who are destroying the temple by destroying the foundation that is Christ or by attempting to lay another foundation. And he says those who do that will find themselves destroyed by God. That's not saved, but only as through fire. That's not saved at all. In verse 15, if that warning applies to leaders who, while orthodox, nevertheless are vulnerable to puffing themselves up sometime and they're growing through that, uh, those growing pains, the warning in verse 17, I think, has application to leaders who have become so smitten with themselves and their own cleverness that they've gone rogue into the heralding of a different gospel altogether, right? Both feet firmly off the foundation, and then in verse 18, Paul goes back to the Corinthian congregation and warns them. They're desperate to appear wise. They're desperate to feel wise. He warns them not to settle for the self-deceptions that worldly wisdom has to offer. He calls them to renounce that form of wisdom, and he does so for two reasons that show up in the remaining part of our passage. In verses 19 and 20, his argument is basically that the world, excuse me, the wisdom of the world simply isn't enough. It isn't enough now. It never has been. That's why he can reach back to these Old Testament passages, uh, Job 5 and Psalm 94, as demonstrations of the fact that worldly wisdom, it's not just it's not enough in Corinth. It wasn't enough then. It was never enough. But then in verses 21 to 23, he goes a step further, right, in the development of this argument and tells them that they shouldn't settle for this kind of boasting in their favorite speaker because not only is that not enough, but it amounts to incalculably less than what they're offered in Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 21, let no one boast in men for all things are yours. And when we think about boasting here, that's a, that this, is a, this is a loaded term. It's the equivalent of relying on, resting on, trusting in, uh, whatever, whatever that thing may be, that, that's bearing the weight of one's soul. That's, that's the kind of reliance that's taking place. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 1.31, the only one worthy of that kind of boast is the author of our faith and not those who serve it. That's what Paul is saying. Live in light of who you are by not boasting, not dividing, right, in the servants of grace when the author of grace has provided all things for us in Christ. Why should they settle for attaching themselves to this favorite speaker or that favorite speaker instead of God who is the one who supplies the growth and the grace through these different servants? Whether it's Paul, Apollo, Cephas, even our ministry leaders at Grace today, they're servants and stewards of Christ, but they're not Christ. And so there needs to be a kind of an, an inversion of sight, seeing things through a new lens, as our sermon series describes, in such a way that in Christ we begin to recognize that those ministry leaders, indeed everything else, serve us. 
Isn't that amazing how comprehensive the scope of verse 22 is in describing what belongs to people who are in Christ? Look at that verse again. So finishing at the end of verse 21, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. That's comprehensive in scope. It's reminiscent of Romans 8, which, quick plug for the uh, upcoming conference, you'll want to be a part of, right? The end of Romans 8 in particular, very resonant uh, with verse 22. Even to, the, even to the extent that Paul can say in verse 22 that death serves those who are in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Eventually, somebody's going to get around to preaching the passage of 1 Corinthians 15. And we look forward to it, and it'll be a wonderful occasion. But there, right, we see the greatness of the foundation of, the, of Christ vindicated ultimately and finally in his resurrection. So that even death has lost its sting. And in the end, can only end up serving the saints by ushering them into the presence of his glory. That's amazing. The scariest thing of all, the final enemy, becomes a servant to those who are in Christ. Okay, so one of the things that I've been given a lot of time to pondering and praying about and thinking through uh, in preparation for this message is why are these Corinthians so desperate to appear and feel like they're wise? And more specifically, why are they so vulnerable to the temptation to prop up their own sense of wisdom by latching on to this favorite or that favorite who happens to be skilled at what their world finds valuable? I think the deepest answer, I think at bottom the theological answer to the question is rooted in their insecurity. I think in the resources of their, the recesses of their hearts, they recognize we're not wise and we desperately need wisdom. Now, I want to try to unpack that a little bit for you because the passage does not explicitly say that. So how can we draw that as a, as a, as a possible or helpful conclusion if it's not explicitly stated here? Let me recommend a resource to you. <clears throat> One handy tool for Bible study that I've enjoyed uh, over the last few years is Crossway's Gospel Transformation Study Bible, okay? Gospel Transformation Study Bible. It does a really nice job of helping readers properly understand how all of Scripture expresses something true about the Gospel. It's especially helpful in places where the truths about the gospel are not directly or explicitly stated. And when that happens, there is um, an abundant history of sort of uh, fanciful interpretation, trying to make it connect, maybe and sometimes in ways that it doesn't connect. Well, what do you do in passages like that? Here is the good advice, in my opinion, <clears throat> uh, from the Gospel Transformation Study Bible. <clears throat> this is in the front matter to the Bible, right? This is what they, what they recommend. When a text neither plainly predicts nor prepares for Christ's person or work, the redemptive truths reflected in the text can always be discerned by asking two questions that are fair to ask of any text. Number one, what does this text reflect about the nature of God who provides redemption? And secondly, what does this text reflect about the nature of humanity that requires redemption? Those are helpful questions, aren't they? And I think in our passage, it's the second question that's especially helpful. What does it reveal 
about the nature of humanity that requires redemption in terms of thinking about why the Corinthians are so desperate to grasp at these human expressions of wisdom. Let's tease this out a little bit. So going all the way back to the fall in Genesis chapter 3, humankind from that point forward has been left, all of us, with a sense of unease about our place in the world, right? At times, when we're honest, we all feel vulnerable and unable to secure, unable to secure whatever it is that we happen to treasure. All the way back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve intuitively sensed their own vulnerability after their sin as they immediately reached for the insufficient covering of self-protection. I want to say that there is a mercy in this sense of vulnerability. It's a kind of warning system, a kind of common grace warning system that is alerting us to the fact that something actually is wrong, right? If you sense that, right, if you have an awareness of that vulnerability, of that inability to protect your treasure, don't suppress it. Talk to one of the people on the prayer team at the end of service about it. You can speak to me. There's probably somebody sitting in your aisle that would be happy to talk to you and pray with you about what that means and how to heed that sense of warning. The problem of the fallen human condition is not that we seek for belonging and security. It's that in our fallenness, we seek it in all the wrong places, right? That's how to take the warning signal and go wrong. In the Corinthian case, they have, may have reached for the security that, that they felt came to them by attaching themselves to these speakers who performed well at what their culture valued and linking up with one or the other of those speakers probably for a time seemed to stabilize, right, that anxiety because it receives the accolades of present company. Are you doing the right thing? boy, way to go. It can kind of numb us for a little while into thinking that we are secure. But I think Paul's point in our passage today is to warn us specifically, right, the Corinthians initially and us by extension specifically against relying on the judgment of present company. Present company doesn't see enough, Paul says. Rather, we need to take our wisdom cues and seek our security from what will stand the judgment of that final day. He's saying, look for more, look for larger, look for bigger. Don't be so easily satisfied. Human wisdom is not enough. Now, in our own context, uh, our cultural temptation is probably not to latch on to polished oratory. <clears throat> we're more of a sound bite and tweet kind of culture. But we're still similarly vulnerable to seeking too little and taking our security cues from present company that can't deliver on their promises. And Paul's point throughout all of the chapters we've looked at so far is that if we seek security from that which cannot ultimately provide it, that is truly the fool's errand. So where do you feel buffeted by and perhaps vulnerable to taking worldly cues for your own sense of security? Jason mentioned last week that some of us uh, maybe are vulnerable to shallow outward portrayals of brand management, right? And so the thought there is something like, like uh, if I can control the narrative about me so that you think well of me, then maybe I'll think well of myself and I'll have some peace. Maybe some of us are vulnerable to that. Could be other things. Whatever it is, wherever you are inclined to seek your security or your escape or your numbness, 
whatever it may be, if you've never turned to Christ, I want you to know that he's the one your heart's been longing for, even if you didn't realize it. And the best way I have ever seen this point made, I can't beat it, so I'm just going to use it, is from your friend and mine, C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, probably his most famous, aside from the Narnia books. And he puts it this way. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Something with a better foundation, right? Deeper security. That's a good word. In a similar manner, though, if you're already a child of God, you've already rested your soul's weight on him, but you're continuing in the battle as we all do against these types of worldly cues, I think Paul would remind you to start with who? With who you are in Christ, with who God has made you to be, and with what he intends to give you in Christ. People who have tasted that reality, tasted that identity, can joyfully, even if not perfectly, along the lines of verse 18, become fools for Christ. Bearing the world's scorn if necessary, just as Christ bore the world's scorn and became a fool for you, so that in him we might become truly wise and ultimately secure. I I think that's the secret to some of the most secure living in some of the most insecure circumstances people ever face knowing and resting in the fact that Christ is my, greatest, is my greatest treasure and in him that treasure has already been secured means I don't have to live as though it were vulnerable. A lot of things can be taken from me. The best thing can't. Doesn't that have the, doesn't that have the potential, the capacity to reverberate in such a way that there can be security even in insecure circumstances? Can't touch my greatest treasure. I don't have to protect it as though it were vulnerable. It's already been secured. People who have tasted that kind of security do things like the apostles in Acts 5, when in light of imprisonment and beatings, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? That's weight that's resting on a better foundation. And people who have tasted that kind of security write hymns like it is well with my soul, with lines like these. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. If you know anything about the circumstances of the pinning of that hymn, it will mean even more to you. But people like that are growing strong as a result of feeding their faith on better blessings than worldly wisdom has to offer. They marinate again and again in who they are in Christ, and as time goes by, they take that aroma on more and more, like 2 Corinthians talks about. That is what Paul wanted for these Corinthian Christians, and I believe that by extension, it's what God wants for us at Grace today. 
So in order to bring this all to a head, here's what I'd like to do with the final uh, few moments that we have together. I want to allow a little bit of space for personal and prayerful inventory. I'm going to put some prompts, three questions on the screen that I think might help us reflect on what this passage is talking about and help us take it down into our souls a little bit. And after some time has passed, Kenny then will come up and lead us in worship. Uh, And as Maddie mentioned, the prayer team will then at the end of the service be spread around the room if you need someone to pray with uh, or have questions about some of the things that we've said. Here's the questions. Just to reflect on in, in, in some quiet meditation for a few moments here. Number one, where am I currently settling for too little? In terms of the things uh, where I might be seeking security, right? Where am I settling for too little? Resting on a weight that does not uh, sustain. Two, which is similar to one, uh, where am I building with inadequate materials on such a great foundation? Is there anywhere in which I've got one foot on, one foot off? Too much me, not enough Jesus. Uh, Three, how might I better reckon then with the priority of who I am in Christ? So let's take a few moments of private prayer and meditation on these prompts, and then Kenny will lead us in our concluding song.